You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. How do you know what the future holds for you and your posterity? That is a question very much on my mind as we go back to work this week. I was off for a three-day weekend for July 4th. Today is July 6th. I had July 5th off, which was a Monday. Today's Tuesday. And once I record this short podcast, I will be back at it again, back in the saddle, working in my 9 to 5, but not really 9 to 5, Monday through Friday occupation. And I keep thinking about the episodes of the HBO miniseries, John Adams, based on the David McCulloch book by the same name about one of our founding fathers, one of my favorite of our founding fathers, John Adams a Boston man, a Massachusetts man. He saw himself as belonging to Massachusetts. That was his country. John Adams was a prickly personality given to bursts of excitement, irritation, upset. He was excitable, you might say. John Adams was instrumental in getting the Declaration of Independence approved, voted on, passed through the Continental Congress. Of course, he wasn't the only one pushing, but he was key and pivotal to the united front, which we now know of as the United States of America. I watched the first two episodes of the John Adams miniseries with my oldest two sons, The next two down lost interest rather quickly, and I didn't insist that they watch because they're still a bit younger, and it's important to remember that sometimes. But we watched the first two episodes on the 4th of July, and we watched another episode last night after me and the four older boys got back from helping their Uncle Bryce, my brother, my younger brother, and their grandpa, my dad, move. My dad has now brought his first U-Haul and van full of things from Glendive, Montana and moved those into the house he will be renting in Evans from my brother. And we have taken a fair amount of stuff. I think it's most of the last of their stuff from my brother's house in Evans to his new house in Millican, Colorado. But we came home, got showered, we were tired, exhausted even, and decided it would be nice to sit down and watch another episode of John Adams. So we watched episode three last night, and I'm struck by how concerned Adams was with posterity. He was concerned about the direction that the country was going in, but that was not entirely selfless. He was interested in the direction of the country as an extension of his concern for, his love for, his own posterity, his own children and what kind of a future they would have, his wife and what kind of a future she would have, and of course, 
his own reputation. He was very concerned, sometimes even to a fault, with what he would be remembered by, how he would be remembered, whether he would be remembered. And it bothered him when he saw other men he felt were less worthy getting the credit, taking the limelight, taking things in a direction that he felt was not correct, and yet getting progress, making strides, seeing success, getting credit. He was kind of a fussy sort of a character. And yet, I can't help liking the guy because he was right, even as he had an obvious difficulty getting along and playing well with others very much of the time. The savviest others in the Continental Congress, the HBO miniseries portrays, and the book before that portrays, as having keyed in on the fact that John Adams was correct, but he was difficult to get along with. And so the savviest and most selfless of Adams's compatriots chose to overlook as often as they could his shortcomings and even to help him in overcoming his own prickly personality to work together towards the good of the 13 colonies and then subsequently the United States of America. And I think that is heroic, that they were not so offended and they didn't take it so personally when he was fussy and excitable. Instead, they chose to look at the substance of his remarks, the thrust of his argument, and where it was correct to help moderate his very often abrasive way of communicating what was correct. Adams clearly thought that he had to have a sharp tongue and bully people rhetorically in order to get them to see what needed to be done. And savvier compatriots saw that sometimes you have to take the indirect approach. It's almost as though they were trying to prove the maxims of B.H. Liddell Hart that strategy, the indirect approach, is often and more often than not the correct way to go about accomplishing things. And yet, if everyone was only ever maneuvering delicately, playing politics, how would you know what anybody stands for? The fact that Adams came out boldly, bluntly, and said, this is what we should be about, and here's why, either get on board or get out of the way, gave even those who were more politically savvy, more likable, more approachable, easier to work with, a focal point that was necessary, it was helpful, it was essential. So I'm watching this show with my sons, and so long as I can keep their attention, I have to try to make the most of it. And when it's obvious I can't keep their attention on it any longer because they are still boys and not men just yet, and even men very often have short attention spans and prefer to run off and play games instead of study history. My sons, I am trying to instill with this sense of 
needing to be principled and also needing to be pragmatic. If you can be pragmatic at the same time that you're being principled and understand the difference between the core essential non-negotiables and those things which maybe have more to do with foolish pride than with the success of your endeavors. If you can balance those two, you will go far. The episode we watched last night, Adams goes as part of the envoy to France because this newly born independent country we now know of as the United States of America needs naval power and they do not have it. So they need allies and they look for an ally in a common enemy of Great Britain, France. France and England throughout their history have been at war off and on. It's more unusual for them to work together against a common enemy than for them to be fighting one another. But Adams and Dr. Franklin, Ben Franklin, go and have very different approaches to the French court. Franklin is very pragmatic, extremely pragmatic, even to the point of calling into question what his principles are because he plays his cards so close to the chest and he is so indirect that Adams, very often you can tell, fears that he has no principles. Or he forgets what his principles are because Adams gets a bit lost in the minutiae of being diplomatic. He is so fixed on what the principle is and he is so uncompromising that he doesn't know how to negotiate. And so it's helpful that Adams has a Franklin in his sphere to help protect him from himself, to help protect this cause from a strident inflexibility that threatens to derail the whole operation. But for Adams's part, it is difficult for him to understand and to be patient with the kinder, gentler approach to diplomacy, which Franklin is engaging in. And maybe even with cause, Adams wonders if Franklin is just soaking up the attentions of the French court and milking this. It's important that Franklin has an Adams in his sphere, even though he conspires to have Adams removed from the French court and sent elsewhere or else put on hold, hold position, await further orders and instructions. It is for the best, perhaps, and yet Adams takes it personally and feels very wounded and is very offended by the fact that Franklin has just conspired to sideline him. Adams comes into the situation prickly and is not enough a student of his own heart, and that is why he has a helpmeet suitable for him in Abigail Adams, who is portrayed in a wonderful way by Laura Linney in the HBO miniseries. Paul Giamatti plays John Adams, I think, to wondrous effect, portraying the stop-go, stop-go of his wrestling with self-control. That is to say, John Adams has a problem with self-control and restraint and with hubris. And his wife helps him to see when he is letting 
his conceit get the better of him, and it is clouding his judgment and impairing his effectiveness. And when he is across the ocean from her, it really bothers him. He loves his wife dearly, and he is very wounded when she objects to his being sent away after so many years of absence serving in the Congress. She takes it personally because even the most principled of people are still human beings at the end of the day. And she doesn't want to be away from her husband anymore. She doesn't want her children to be away from their father anymore. She doesn't want to sacrifice anymore. Isn't that enough? Aren't there other men that could step up now and do what needs to be done? So when Adams shows up, he's automatically in a cantankerous, irritable mode and all the more aggravated because of how calmly and coolly Franklin is enjoying the attentions of the French. He sees the lack of urgency as a lack of care. He sees the give and take, delicate speaking in code as a lack of integrity, a lack of honesty, a lack of directness, and a risk to what sort of arrangement will come out on the other end. He wants to go home, obviously. He wants to not be there, obviously. Even though he knows he must be there, he can't quite restrain himself from being irritable, testy, difficult. And yet, ultimately he does because he hangs in there. Ultimately he does restrain himself, even though his first impulse, his strongest impulse, is to wrestle with what kind of posterity will they have, his family, if he gives all to this country, if he sacrifices his family, his relationship with his wife, his children, what sort of future do they have then? It has to be balanced. His wife insists that he takes their eldest son, John Quincy Adams. And John Quincy Adams, as some of you may know, ends up being president after his father, John Adams. And it's remarkable the kind of education that John Q. Adams is able to get by being involved in these things and seeing them up close and personal, being the son of John Adams and Abigail Adams. It's remarkable the kind of opportunity he has to be introduced to politics at the outset. But the conversations I'm having with my sons as we watch this, especially my oldest son, Josiah, have to do with restraining our tongue, have to do with knowing when to be less than completely blunt. Because you see Thomas Jefferson, you see Ben Franklin in the Continental Congress coming alongside Adams. And to Adams's credit, he listens to their counsel when they say, you are being pig-headed. He has a harder time when he's away from his family in France because Adams has very, very particular ideas as to propriety, morality, godliness, and he cares not a whit for the lavish sensuality of the French court. He finds it distasteful, repulsive. He tries, despite himself, to operate within it after a fashion but he cannot bring himself to overlook 
the amorality of the French court. And that makes it impossible for him to work with the French as Ben Franklin sees it. But I told my son, my oldest son, I said, you, you notice he's right. Adams is right in what he's saying. He's right in his instincts as far as what is in the national interest, what is in the best interest of these colonies. He's right in what he's saying, but the way that he's saying it sabotages his effectiveness. He's being undisciplined too much of the time. And it's only when he becomes self-disciplined in the way that he is communicating these things that he's able to make headway. He's able to get through to the people he needs to influence. His impatience is his worst enemy. And when he can control himself and when he can have the humility to listen to the rebuke of those around him, he is at his very best. And my son listens to that and he was keying in on it because he's a perceptive young man. And he said, you know what? I can be that way. I really could stand to learn a lot from John Adams. And I tell you what, as a father, that is a beautiful thing to hear. I said to my son, absolutely. So could we all? So could I. I can relate. It can be difficult sometimes to know how to be uncompromising in telling the truth and at the same time be gentle and respectful towards the people who don't yet see that. They don't see the self-evidence of this thing you are trying to tell them. For that matter, if they did, you wouldn't need to tell them, now would you? But if you want them to listen, you can't go around insulting them in public or in private. You have to be considerate. You can't be going in like a bull in a china shop and thinking that a forceful but rude argument is going to win the day. I've read that Adams had such a knack for being abrasive that he could make men who were for a cause turn against that cause by arguing for it because he was so abrasive and off-putting. And the problem of negative association is that it has a tendency to muddy the waters. Positive association of pleasing images, sights, sounds, sentiments with a bad thing can trick us into thinking that bad things are good. But so also, the problem of negative association is that if we associate distasteful things with what is good, we can risk and do risk making good things seem bad. Some people are very artful at this and they do it on purpose because they hate objective standards. And their goal is to make what seems good seem bad because they don't want to do the good thing. They don't want to be responsible, accountable, beholden. They don't want to feel bad. So they're at war with the idea of standards. So also, they want what is bad to seem good because they want to do the bad thing because they're corrupt. And in our day, with the internet, with movies and TV on demand, with very powerful men holding a lot of money and power in very few hands, with the rise of postmodern, post-truth sentiments among the ruling class, it is very 
dangerous to believe what you see and you hear that is widely disseminated without asking, is that really good just because they engaged in some positive association? Is this propaganda vis-a-vis Edward Bernays? Am I being manipulated? Are my buttons being pushed? Is that really a bad thing that's being portrayed as bad right now? Or is this negative association? Are my worst fears being preyed upon in a highly manipulative fashion? Part of what drives a man like John Adams is that he is angry with the machinations, these maneuverings, these misdirections by highly skilled and unscrupulous persons who are not being honest. He's angry with them, and he's angry with the folks who fall for it. He's angry with being pulled away from what he would much rather be doing. The happiest you see Adams in the HBO miniseries as he is being very skillfully portrayed by Paul Giamatti is when he is teaching his oldest son how to make fertilizer. That is an odd thing, but yet it reminds me of Martin Luther and his very crass remarks about whether he would prefer feces to the gold which belongs to the Pope. The money stored up by the Roman Catholic Church is corrupt, and he thinks that literal feces and dung, and I'm sorry, he uses the word shit a lot, shite, whether literal shit is more wholesome than this dirty money which belongs to the Roman Catholic Church. He is extremely candid, extremely blunt, crude even. And I think similarly, Adams is portrayed as preferring showing his sons and his daughter how to make fertilizer on their little farm outside of Boston to going and dealing with the political machinations of the French who have their own agenda, of the delegates from the various colonies who have their own agendas. He would rather live a quiet life, and yet he does not feel he has that liberty. He feels constrained by the circumstances and his ability to achieve something. And I think insofar as he's preoccupied with his reputation and what sort of a legacy he will have, and whether he gets credit. It isn't just foolish pride. It is also the question of, was it worth it? Did I make a bad trade? Am I wasting my time? Why am I here? Why am I not home with my wife and my children teaching my sons how to farm? If that guy over there is going to get all the credit, does he deserve it? If so, then why don't I just go home? Why do they want me here? if they're not going to listen to me. He really wrestles with a kind of fatalism, I think, as to whether he's wasting his time, whether this is a fool's errand as far as he's concerned. He wrestles, and I think part of his irritation, his flashes of annoyance, are not just with the people he's trying to work with, they're also with himself, because he sees when they are not convinced, 
and he takes it personally as a personal failure that he did not make a good enough argument. He didn't make it clear enough. It's clear to him. He can see it plain as day, but the fact that they didn't see it means he has to go back to the drawing board, which means he's going to be there even longer. He doesn't want to be there any longer. He wants to go home. He wants to be with his wife and his children. And so he's angry with himself that he hasn't gotten it done yet. Boy, that's relatable. I find it relatable, at least. I find him to be a very relatable figure. Warts and all. I like John Adams. John Adams, I think, is my favorite. George Washington, a fine fellow. Thomas Jefferson, not so much. Would I shake hands with him if I had the opportunity to meet him, go back in time, sit down for a meal? Yes, but not my favorite character. Ben Franklin, I can't respect in many regards. John Adams, John Adams was a hero. There's a quote from Adams, which is played out as he is in the French court talking with these powdered, made-up, goofy-looking Frenchmen. And boy, howdy, do they stand in sharp contrast. In their own minds, I'm sure they saw these provincials, these American colonists, as delightfully rural. But the French aristocrats I look at and think of as being pompous, self-absorbed, ridiculous, absurd, self-indulgent clowns. And yet there's this great scene in which they are clearly making fun of him in French for not understanding French. And they're clearly looking down on him and mocking him because he is not amused by their revelry and their self-indulgence and their frivolity. He doesn't like to play those games. He's there on business. He's there to make arrangements and to go home to his wife and his children. And there's this beautifully acted and written scene in which this sentiment from this quote I'm going to read for you is played out. John Adams, in one of his letters to his wife, says that the science of government, it is my duty to study more than all other sciences. The arts of legislation and administration and negotiation ought to take the place of Indeed, exclude, in a manner, all other arts. I must study politics and war, that our sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. Our sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, and naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture, in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, statuary, tapestry, and porcelain. You see, Adams was thinking about posterity. He was thinking about his children, his grandchildren, yet unborn great-grandchildren for generations to come as he was engaging in politics and war. And the great evil of our time is that we have a great many politicians who are lifelong leeches, parasites who have studied war and politics to fill their own pockets and they do not give a damn about generations that follow. That's half the reason why they employ this hyperbolic, absurd, 
claim that the sky is falling, that global warming is a man-made phenomenon, that we can stop from destroying all our cities if you give them all your power, all your money, all your decision-making capability. They don't care about future generations, and you can tell that by looking at their children. Look at their corrupt children sitting in boardrooms, raking in huge stacks of cash. It's the spoil system. It's political corruption. They don't live under the laws. They don't expect to live under the laws. They don't expect their children to live under the laws. But if they have to sacrifice your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, so be it, because they are not public servants. John Adams was a public servant. John Adams was serving not only his country, but his family. And that was the difficulty, that he was trying to serve his family even as he was away from them, and he felt torn in two. He felt drawn and quartered by the circumstances which required him to be away, which required him to pay so much attention to politics and diplomacy when he would rather teach his sons to make fertilizer and keep a farm. He had the long view, the long game. I think that's also part of what caused him to be impatient sometimes, was that he was thinking, how are we ever going to end up where we need to be if these setbacks are constantly derailing us? We need more men like this, and indeed, gentlemen, we need to be men like this. Instead of wishing that someone else would step up to the plate, we need to be men like this. We need to see it as our duty to study the science of government, the arts of legislation and administration and negotiation. We need to see it as our duty to study politics and war, that our sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. It falls to us. I could tell you now about having met one of John Adams and John Quincy Adams' descendants in North Dakota. I've told that story on this podcast before. It was a great delight, one of the highlights of my working life, that I encountered him at a well site as I was doing preventative maintenance checks for Crescent Point Energy. This descendant of John Adams owns quite a lot of land, he and his wife do, in North Dakota, He's very wealthy, but he does not live like it. He collects tractors. He lives right on the border with Canada. Or he did a number of years ago when I met him. He collects tractors, and he drives around in an old, beat-up truck, an old pickup, and he wears coveralls. And he speaks eloquently, but he obviously is living the dream to some extent which his ancestor, his illustrious forebear, had in mind. Living a quiet life, minding his own business, working with his hands. We talked about politics. We talked about government. We talked about the news and about what Democrats were trying to do. And he was incensed against Democrats and the left for trying to destroy this country. It was remarkable. I could tell you all about that. But I want to leave you with this thought. It is our duty to study these things in light of Jeremiah 29.7. God tells the exiles in Babylon, his people, who are called by his name, 
to seek the welfare of the city to which God has brought them in their exile. Whether Jesus comes back in five minutes or five years or five centuries, I happen to believe that Jeremiah 29.7 is a fitting focus for our engagement in the civil realm. We do have a responsibility to engage these matters. It is not none of our business just because we are Christians. It is not getting engaged in civilian affairs to take our responsibility in these matters seriously. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? I know that a great many people in my sphere, even here in Greeley, Colorado, object strenuously to this idea that we are supposed to do justice. On the one side, they hear the social justice crowd perverting justice, and they say, no, that is not our job. Our job is not to do that. And they're right. Our job is not to pervert justice and call it justice. But we don't do any more our part when we say that the social justice crowd has got it wrong, and therefore there is no right. There is no justice. Now, wait a second. That's arguably worse than adopting a perverted standard of justice to say that there is no justice. There is no such thing. Then we are in the Old Testament book of Judges, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. There is no king in the land, no king in Israel. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Micah 6.8 says very clearly, He has shown you, O man, what is good. It is good to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And what does the Lord require of you? He requires of you that you do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with him. And someone will say, ah, yes, but that's only talking about my own personal affairs, my own business, my own conduct. Yes, that's right. And do you understand all of what is your business? That is the question. I'll leave off for this episode with that question, and we'll pick it up again, I am sure, God willing. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.